All right, we're back in Revelation this morning. But don't get too excited, we're going to be in Romans first. So your teaser is we're talking about Armageddon. That'll keep you interested. So we're in Revelation 16, but I want to, um, so last week, if you were here for that, was uh, somewhat heavy, was it not? And really, leading up to that, the weeks before that, um, the topic has been really focused on the judgment or wrath of God. Um, and we've had, we're getting into the last section of judgments this morning. And, but we started weeks and weeks ago with, you know, we had the, the, the seals and the trumpets, and now we're going to do the bowls, each one representing seven judgments, okay? And each one gets more intense. And then last week, in between the trumpets and bowls, we had hell, right? And so it's like, I don't know about you, but it's, it's a lot. And I knew it would be a lot. But it's what the Bible says, and so that's what we're doing. And so I want to, and I've addressed kind of the discomfort with this kind of discussion, because in the Bible, it, there's no discomfort. We need to first recognize that. In fact, I'm going to read this morning, going to finish with a section of chapter 16, where not only are they not uncomfortable, they are praising God for his wrath. That's a whole nother step. It's like Paul saying, I rejoice in my suffering. Not just I'm okay with it or I submit to Christ in it, but I rejoice in it. That's a whole nother level, right? And that's where we go this morning. So I want to first just kind of recap what I've told you already and then address another concern that I think comes up. I've told you that our discomfort comes from, one, diminishing the gravity of sin in general. Kind of saying, well, sin's not that big of a deal. Why is God so upset? Two, diminishing the greatness of God's holiness. Well, God's not that great or God's not that holy. Why would he be so upset? Why is he so wrapped up in what we're doing? And then three, exaggerating the power of our goodness. Well, I'm not that bad of a person. Or that person is not that bad of a person. Why would they be subject to God's wrath? That seems, and so all, those, all three of those things are a problem. But I think there's another one which is that we start to feel as if God's not being fair, that the punishment doesn't fit the crime. When we start talking about hell especially, and that it's eternal, and that it's unfading. I told you last week that just like God's mercy is unfading, his wrath is unfading. It's not that he lets up after a while. And that's like, you start to get your head around that, that seems like a lot. And there's this creeping feeling that you can start to think, which is really an accusation against God that he's not being fair. That somehow the scales of justice don't balance out. And so I want to address that for a minute. So let's look at Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 16, we could really do this whole chapter, but that's too much. We want to talk about Armageddon, right? So, anyway. so verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, which just means it's all about faith. It begins and ends with faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So let's break this down for a minute. He says they are without excuse, which I think is plain enough. We just read verse 20 and move on to Revelation 16. But we need to, Paul gives us some reasons for why they are without excuse, all right? He says a a righteous person is one who keeps God's law. That's what that word means. Paul uses that word at the beginning of that section. An unrighteous person is one who breaks God's law. So God says, live this way, do this way. This is how I, this is who I am. This is who you are. And I have rules. If you want to approach me and be with me because I'm holy, this is what you have to do. And we've broken that law. That's an unrighteous person. Okay. Part of being unrighteous, Paul says here, or perhaps foundational to being unrighteous, is the continual internal suppression of the obvious or plain truth that Paul calls it about the nature and power of God that is revealed in creation. So he says, it is not hard to see, it's plain and obvious to everyone. He's very clear. Not just some people, but every single person who has ever lived or ever will live, it is plain and obvious if you, are, if you just look around, at least you know that about God's nature and his power, that he's great, he's powerful, and he's good, and he's holy, and he should be obeyed. You may not know enough to know the gospel to become a believer, but you, begin, you know enough to seek after him. And what does God say? He's, Jesus says, if you seek me, you'll find me. Everyone looks at the stars, sunrises and sunsets, mountains, valleys, microbes, sea creatures, and more. And knows on some level that God exists and he is powerful. And that observation alone is enough to at least know what God is like and therefore seek after him. So in their unrighteousness, that motivates them to do what? To deceive themselves. There's an internal resistance against that truth. Rejecting the grace and mercy of God requires a constant internal resistance to the truths made plain to us by God in the world around around us. So every unbeliever that you meet, whether they recognize it or not, is living with a constant internal conflict between what they know is true that is plain to them in the world around them and their own unrighteousness at war against that knowledge. To deceive themselves. Romans 10, 9 through 17 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There's the gospel there. If you want to know how to become a Christian, there it is. 
Verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the gospel must be preached. I can't look at a tree and perceive the gospel. I can look at a tree and perceive that there's a creator and he's powerful and he should be known. And I seek after him. But we're promised that if we seek after him, we will find someone to preach the gospel to us. That's God's guarantee. The rest of Romans 1 shows the progression from suppressing the truth to exchanging the truth for a lie, resulting in idolatry, which is just giving your allegiance to created things, which leads to hedonism, sexual perversion, cultural breakdown, and eventually sin that destroys relationships like covetousness, malice. We get this whole list from Paul. This is the ultimate net result of this suppression of the truth that we see around us. And Romans 1 ends with this, verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. It suggests that it's in some way worse to give approval to those that practice them versus just doing it yourself. It harkens back to Revelation, what we saw last week, was that one of the things that Babylon does is not only drinks the wine of their rebellion against God, but they entice and induce others to do the same. God really dislikes that. So the wrath of God seen in Revelation is the figurative description of God's response here. Paul even uses the word wrath. God is trying to purge the world of this rebellion. Christ is purging the world of unrighteousness by redeeming those that seek him and evicting from the world those that choose to live in their unrighteousness. So accusing God of being unfair in a sense is actually right, just not for the reasons you think. The fact that unbelievers can enjoy yet another sunset and not acknowledge God as their creator it is miraculous that God allows that. It is the ultimate mercy that we get to enjoy the fruits of this life, not acknowledging God, and instead worshiping what he made as though it were God. And him not just go, all right, that's it. This is like flood 2.0. That's what mercy is. He has been unfair in the world's favor. The fact that he lets the unrighteous continue to take in yet another beautiful sunset without acknowledging him is a mercy beyond description. And so this accusation that you feel, I think it's a temptation for everybody, Christian or not, if that seems harsh 
or that seems unfair. What about the, the innocent tribesman in the middle of the Amazon who's never heard the gospel? And that person does not exist. There is no such thing as someone who is without excuse or has an excuse. Because God has designed creation and the world and the way things work. Even the fact that some things don't work should alert you to the fact that something's broken. It's not, things are not as they should be. What's going on here? Why do things break down? What's wrong with the world? That itself should alert you to the fact that something else is going on. None of us have an excuse. All right. So enough of that. Revelation 16. So I'm not going to read through all of these. A lot of these images are very familiar to you. Um, as I have told you several times, but not everyone has been here for the whole series, all right, is that these seven judgments are repeating the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. They're recapitulating is the word I'm using, which is not like the same as repeating. Repeating is like exactly the same. Recapitulation means... It's covering the same content, but from a different perspective, right? So each time you see these seven judgments mentioned, these seven images or descriptions of judgment, they're describing the same time period, which is the time period we live in right now, all right? The time between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. Don't know how that long. If you were to draw a line graph, you don't know how long to make that because we don't know how long this is going to be, right? It's probably shorter than you think at this point, right? Hopefully this afternoon. Actually, hopefully right now, before this sermon is over. It would be great. It would be a great conclusion to my sermon. <laughs> Trumpet blast. Woo! Done. That would be wonderful. I've started praying for that constantly, especially when, my, when life is not going as I want it to go, which is an appropriate thing to do. But, so... When you read through this, if you've been following along and comprehending what I've been teaching, which let's hope that's been happening, right? Uh, comprehending it, then when you get to this section, some of this should be familiar to you. And you should start to go, oh, I think I know what this means because this was also an image that I remember from before and before that. I saw that. And you start to put it together, all right? So each bowl of wrath that we're talking about here, that's an image of like, you know, you know what a bowl looks like. You fill it up, and then if you pour it out, like so imagine filling up a bowl with wrath, right? And you, God takes it, and it's all full, sloshing around, and he pours it out on the earth, and each one's different, okay? Each bowl of wrath being poured out brings either a natural disaster disease or famine, which is likely what the scorching sun represents in verses 1 through 12. You see the scorching sun, they're being burned. That's not like, you know, just getting a sunburn. Um, it's an image that for them would have been associated with famine. It has not rained. It's scorching hot. Just imagine like the desert where nothing grows but things that don't require a lot of water, right? And so the crops are dead. That's what that scorching sun probably represents. 
Verse 12 also includes a drought that weakens them enough to allow invaders from the east to attack. That's another theme throughout Revelation is when God's judgment includes a lack of safety, a lack of covering. He allows things to happen in the world and in your economy and in your infrastructure to allow you to be invaded by people that want to destroy you. And so that's kind of a scary idea because that's one of those judgments that affects us even though it's not for us because we live here (laughs) we live in the town that God is allowed to be weakened and get invaded by foreign enemies all of this represents a total collapse at all levels of society that's the picture we get over and over again verses 13 through 14 are a quick summary of what we looked at in detail in chapters 12 through 13 they'll be very familiar to you with the three beasts the dragon the woman giving birth the antichrist that whole section so you can sort of insert that sermon right here in that sentence okay so what's this armageddon thing about It's not just a movie. It has nothing to do with Bruce Willis. At the tail end of this section, we see these demonic spirits assembling with the kings of the world. It's called to battle at a place called called Armageddon. Woo. Bum, bum, bum. I need a sound effect. This battle, interestingly enough, is also referenced in two other places in Revelation. Revelation 19, verse 19, and verse, chapter 20, verse 8, those two places. We'll get to those as we go along. So the word Armageddon is a transliteration. You know what transliteration is? I'm using lots of big words. Transliteration is when you, you have a language with letters you don't recognize. So you change those letters to English, in our case, to sort of match the pronunciation phonetically, right? So you put in English letters so that you can at least pronounce it. You may not know what it means, but you can sort of pronounce it, sort of. All right, that's a transliteration, right? So the word Armageddon is a transliteration from Hebrew to English, in our case. And it's two words in Hebrew, Har and Megiddo. Har means mountain. Megiddo is a city located in a strategic location where large armies had often assembled in Israel's past. There's a few verses you can look at to see that pop up in the Old Testament. So it literally means Mount of Megiddo, all right? Armageddon, Mount of Megiddo. It's more fun to say Armageddon. I know people know, sort of know what you're talking about, but you can show your smarts, all right? But that gives us a clue about what it's about because that's a real place. But there's no mountain in Megiddo. There's sort of a hill but it doesn't count as a mountain at all. This is not to be taken as a literal place. I mean, it is a place, but that's not what the mention here is about. It's simply a familiar place where great and important battles were fought. It would have been very familiar to those who first read the book of Revelation. They knew about that place. That's where, that's like Gettysburg. It's a place where you could assemble really large armies and they could fight, and it had happened that way many times. What this means within the context of the book of Revelation is actually far more difficult, all right? So we can sort of solve, we can break the word down, but that doesn't really help us with, like, what does that have to do with me and Revelation and all this stuff? That's harder. And I'll just tell you up front, I'm not really sure, all right? So be humble about it. 
I kind of feel like when I hear, this is one of those things where if I hear somebody talking about Armageddon, like they really know what it's about. And they have sorted it out and solved it emphatically with great confidence. I'm sort of just going to walk away and go, this person is crazy. All right. So when you're up at three in the morning and you turn on the TV, one of those weird local channels, and there's some guy with weird plastic hair, and he's dressed like it's still 1972, and he's telling you Armageddon is, just change the channel. Just move on, unless you're that bored and you just want to know what he's going to say. It's probably wrong. There's a, we need to have some humility about this, because it's, not, it's a word that's not used anywhere else or really explained anywhere else beyond what we see here, okay? It's not that John, if you can look at, you know, First John, and John's like talking about Armageddon and explaining it. They just don't have any examples like that, okay? So I'm going to guess. I'm going to give you an educated guess, but it is a guess. There are many theories. I do not believe there will be some final literal battle between good and evil where God and his angels struggle to fight back the bad guys and eventually win. I don't think that's what this is about. The reason for that is I do not believe God struggles with anything. The word struggle should never be attached to God. He's not trying to do something. He just does things. He does them or does not do them. He is patient and he waits a long time to do things, but he never at any point ever struggles, especially against Satan whom he created and kicked out of heaven and threw down. Right? So this idea that there's like, I don't know where this comes from, I guess it's because it makes really good fiction, is like angels flying around with swords and demons flying around with swords and they're screeching and clashing in the sky and there's explosions and thunder and the angels are almost going to lose. That's just not a thing. I just don't, God never struggles. And so whatever you think this does mean, I am of the conviction that it should not include God trying to do anything. He may be waiting and be patient, but not struggling against. God never struggles with the dead. Satan is nowhere near as powerful as God is. And what power he has was granted to him by God himself. Satan is always a dog on a leash. He is never a free agent. And he's never even competing against God in his power. It's not even close. So at least you know what I think it's not, right? God never struggles. I do, what I think this means, very simply, is that it's the culmination of all the rebellion and wickedness set up against God. That we can expect, and I've told you this all along, you can see this escalation of disturbance in the world, the judgment of God, the rebellion of the people against God, that some will respond to God's judgment by not repenting and instead getting harder in their hearts towards them. Others will finally break and submit to him and become believers. That's the dynamic we're going to see all the way until the end of history. And so I think this is just a symbolic picture of that coming to a head. It's the climax of history, the climax of the Antichrist spirit in rebellion against God, where the whole world, 
all the leaders, all the kingdoms of the world band together in rebellion against God, where it's not just that one country over there or that one group over there who is kind of anti-God. It's everybody. I think that's what that means. But feel free to disagree. And feel free to watch Armageddon. It's a fun movie. All right. So if you look at verses 9 and 11, let's read those. This is, this is clearer to me, and we can, it helps us understand the world. Verse 9 says, this is chapter 16, verse 9, They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. And John is kind of incredulous. Like, it's, how strange. <laughs> you would not repent, right? And then he says, we see it again in verses 10 through 11. Of the second half of verse 10. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So in response to God's judgment, the unrighteous will continue to harden their hearts like children that refuse to obey despite the punishment. One of my children, who will remain, remain nameless, this was a very long time ago, it was not Owen. <laughs> You see that? Yes, finally, I'm not a terminal church. One of my children, many years ago, in the high chair. Uh, only, the only other two children are girls, so I'll say she. She loves her favorite food was chicken nuggets. But one day, sitting in her high chair, I was there by myself. Heather was at church or something. She decided she didn't want to eat, and I said, "Eat your chicken nugget. I don't have time for this." I'm very tired. She sensed it. She sensed weakness and decided this, this is where she was going to draw the line in the sand, and she refused to eat the chicken. So then I said, I'll have mercy on her, and I will chop the chicken nugget up. I won't make her eat all the chicken nuggets or even all of one chicken nugget. I will break it down to this tiny little bite, this tiny little about the size of my pinky finger. This is all I'm expecting of you, child. Just eat this one bite, and you love this is your favorite food. She's like, mm-mm. So I take it, and I just, I like put it in her mouth because she's crying, right? She's like, ah, angry cry. Angry, rageful. If I was big enough, I would strike you, Dad, and cry, right? She's looking at me, just, ah, and I just put it in her mouth, and she, Bleh. I'm like, I'm doing everything, but I even try to remember, like, trying to get her to, to chew it. Because I'm like, I can, I can do everything but make you swallow, right? Just obey. So she refused. So I took her back to her bedroom and disciplined her and brought her back out and put her in the high chair. There's the bite of a chicken nugget. Refused. Took her back to the room, disciplined her, disciplined her brought her back out. We did this for a very long time. She was crying. I was crying. I had Heather on the phone. Help me. What do I do? She said, whatever you do, do not quit. Because you cannot quit. Because she needs to know that daddy doesn't quit. You must obey. And it was absolutely unbelievable that in her tiny little heart, with her sweet little face, she, would be, she was willing to have her rear end in pain instead of eating her favorite food. Like, this was the choice. 
And it's at, this is human nature. That so, if we just, we would rather take the pain than relent and submit to God. And this is what John is describing this dynamic, not just in a little child, but in all the world, all of humanity. Is that as he disciplines the world and says, look, do you really want another plague? Do you really want another plague on your behind? I will not repent. People are gnawing their tongues. They're in so much pain. And John is looking at this vision, and he can't believe what he's seeing, like me looking at my child in her high chair, and I can't believe the level of stubbornness, and I'm kind of proud of her too, but God's not. This is why I wonder if those, I mentioned this kind of offhand last week, those who end up in hell will actually never cease to curse God. Their hearts will only grow harder and harder and harder over across eternity. Because I think this is the human dynamic. Every knee will bow, but I don't think every knee will do it willingly. So how do the righteous respond to God's judgment? This is kind of where I started in Romans 1. Look at verses 5 to 7, Revelation 16, 5 through 7. He says, And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, True and just are your judgments. This is a worship service in heaven. And the theme for this week's worship service is the wrath of God. I would say it is a sign of a high level of sanctification that you can get this and feel it. You can rejoice and worship God not in spite of his wrath, but because of it. Because he's just. We use earthly metaphors all the time. Like what good is a judge if he lets criminals go free? We would be a bad judge. And so at the end of eternity, and we look at him and we look at history, we will not say about God, you were a bad judge. We will say you're the best judge. You are the example, the definition of justice in every single thing you have done and will do throughout eternity. Not one person got more than they deserved, got more wrath than they deserved. Because we'll look at Jesus, right? Isn't this what we see on the cross? If you take away God's wrath, what does the cross mean? Like, what's that? That just, that's meaningless. Jesus just, Jesus was a victim of circumstance. If you take away God's activity in that, if you take away God's action, his sovereignty over the suffering of Christ, then Jesus was just a victim of Roman totalitarianism and Jewish, you know, religious false zeal. He was misunderstood. And we just see him as this victim, but that is not what he was. We took communion this morning. That means something. 
God took the wrath, the bloody, violent, just wrath we deserved, and he put it on Christ. And his, the bloodiness of the cross is just symbolic of that. Just as with the seal and trumpet sections, the final act is, the, is to bring time into completion. We see this at the end of this section, verses 17 through 21. It says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done! That'll be a good day. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. We talked about that. We saw that last week. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. There it is again. This is just John trying to describe the power of God completing everything. All evil, wickedness, rebellion, wiped out. Babylon Wiped out. There's nothing brought down to just rubble. Split in three parts and utterly destroyed and wiped out. Wickedness purged from the world. That's reason to rejoice. Imagine a world where there's no evil. No rebellion against God. Then what we forget is when God brings peace, he doesn't bring peace through compromise. That's man's peace, mankind's peace. We want peace with this country, so let's go over and we'll have a summit meeting and we'll meet you halfway, right? You'll get some stuff that you want and we'll get the stuff we want and we'll come to this agreement and we talk and talk and talk and finally we have a treaty and we all sign that treaty and we agree and we go, yay, peace. What always happens? Eventually, someone breaks it, incrementally. Well, I'll just take a little bit more than I was supposed to take. I'll just move a little farther. I'll cross this line, cross it, and eventually it falls apart. That's a man's idea of peace. God's idea of peace is peace through conquest. God rolls into town, and he says, do it my way, or that's it. Just do it my way. And you go, well, that's not right. If you're a human, sure. But if you're God, your way's the right way. Right? There's no, if, to meet God halfway would be for him to go, yeah, you've got some good ideas too. And I didn't know some things that you knew. <laughs> and I'm so glad we had this talk because I don't know everything. I'm so glad you were here. But that's, then that's not even God, Right? God's way is always perfect. And to suggest that he should meet me halfway is to suggest that there's something I know that he doesn't. So God's not being mean. He's just like, yeah, there's just not a better way than me. And so when God brings peace, he brings peace by everyone submitting to him. There's no second option that's better. 
He would not be good if he did not do that. To allow some corner of the universe to exist democratically on its own, doing its own thing just because he wants to be nice. That would make him less good than he is. It would be like me saying to my daughter, it's okay, you don't have to eat. Just eat junk. You have some good ideas. She's two years old. Every enemy of God is wiped out. Unrighteousness is purged from the world, and the reign of Christ is fully realized in the world. That's where this ends. And that's where all the, the spinning of craziness in the world is going, even though it's escalating. The other thing that's happening is the kingdom of God is growing. And sometimes you can't see it unless you really pay attention. You've got to look around at the people around you and see God growing in their life. You've got to look at the world and see the way the gospel is spreading like crazy around the world. It's just not happening here the way we want it to. In the southern hemisphere, it is unbelievable the things that are happening. And even in the Middle East right now, the things people having, there's so many stories coming out right now of people in places where there is no church having dreams where Jesus comes to them in a dream. Not just one, just hundreds, hundreds of stories coming out of people having dreams where Jesus just told them, I'm the Messiah. No one even witnessing to him. And then walking out like, I gotta find a, figure out what this is about. And meanwhile, the world is just sort of on fire. Saw a story this week from Finland. Only could find a couple of stories where they've been passing laws progressively over years, making it less and less legal to be Christian. Or we should, they would say to say things that are Christian. You can be Christian, just can't publicly say things that are Christian. And there's a pastor there now probably going to prison for tweeting a Bible verse. It's Finland. Finland. And I saw that and I went, now I can imagine that happening here. It's okay being, it's not illegal to be a Christian. That's what the title of the article said, which I think is a bad title because that's not what's happening. Is you just can't say Christian things. So be a private Christian. Meet in your place privately. Just don't broadcast or say anything outside your four walls that is noticeably or obviously Christian. So when those things happen, we should not be wringing our hands going, oh, what's going to happen? Christianity has been stopped. No, it hasn't. You can't shut down the kingdom of God. It is growing and expanding everywhere on the planet, despite what we see. That's just the Antichrist spirit winding up towards that Armageddon moment where everybody just says, throws in with their hard-heartedness, and we say, oh, this must mean that Jesus is coming back. He's calling in right now the last of the sheep into the sheepfold. 
See, if you imagine, like in my head, I imagine Jesus bringing all the sheep into the sheepfold, calling them in, each one by name. And they hear his voice and they know it's him. And they come walking into the sheepfold and there's a few stragglers. Some of you are stragglers. Out there kind of oblivious. Why is this life so hard? And finally you hear his voice. And your heart breaks. This is what happens when you become a Christian. Is the Holy Spirit opens up your heart, Romans 1, and says, I will not let you suppress the truth anymore. That's the first thing that happens. The Holy Spirit kicks in. The, you didn't ask him. He just comes in and says, all right, and takes the, your ability to suppress the truth that you already know about that God is real, he's powerful, and he should be followed. You, you can't deny it anymore, and you go, i got to find out who this is. And once that starts, it's over for you. You're already on your way into the sheepfold. You just don't know it. And this is what we're doing. We're standing around looking for sheep who are looking for Jesus. And we go, hey, I, I know where he is. <laughs> That's all you're doing. You can't open somebody's heart. So don't despair. And don't allow the enemy to put an accusation in your heart against him that he's somehow unjust or unfair. He's bringing peace. That's the ultimate end to all of this. Why don't we stand up? I want to pray for us. God, we live in an age of outrage, outrage over silly things. Everybody's offended or, or offended with people that are offended. God, I am tired of being outraged and upset about things that don't matter. Lord, would you retrain our outreach meter God, that we would not be outraged at what you are doing, but instead we will be outraged at the stubbornness of the hearts of mankind to resist you. God, would we be outraged at our own passivity regarding just being willing to stand and point to Christ and say, I know where the sheepfold is. I know where the shepherd is. I know him personally. God, teach us to be people with a sense of urgency. God, would you refocus our zeal? God, that we wouldn't get all wrapped up in the politics of this year. We wouldn't get wrapped up in all of these things that are just swirling and churning. But God, that we would refocus as people in a country that is terribly unfocused. God, that we would be people that are focused, that you are coming soon, that you are, the, the end is, is in fact near. God, you would give us a fresh gratitude and urgency about the gospel. God, that we would long to see more people here taking communion with us together, communing around the table of Jesus. 
God, I pray for revival in this church. God, that you would stir us up by your spirit. God, return to us our zeal and passion for you and for your kingdom. God, give us eyes to see your kingdom expanding in the world and right next to us. God, I pray for anyone here who is discouraged, God, that you would encourage them that you are coming soon. This life is not all there is. God, thank you for rescuing us. Lord, would you turn us into rescuers? In the name of Jesus, amen.